The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Durnley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we assess the evolving military situation on the ground, examine the news that Putin has sacked his deputy defence minister, reflect on the apparent assassination of a pro-Russian collaborator in occupied Melitopol, and consider the latest developments following Zelensky's call with President Xi. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 27th of April, one year and 62 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our Associate Editor of Defence, Dominic Nichols, and our guest, Peter Dickinson, from the Atlantic Council, a leading US-based think tank on international affairs. We reflect on the sort of security guarantees Ukraine will need to provide stability to the country after the war. But first, I ask Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, Francis. Hello, everybody. So last night there was a missile strike in Mykolaiv. So Mykolaiv is about 30 k's northwest of Herzon. It's on the route around the corner to Odessa. There was a um, an apartment block hit there early hours of this morning. Killed one, at least one injured, 23, including a child. President Zelensky has said that it was launched from the Black Sea. Four calibre cruise missiles launched from the Black Sea into Mykolaiv. That's, that's ongoing at the moment with the... Uh, the, the clear-up operation there, so the, the injured and dead may, may rise. Secondly, an interesting story, uh, you, you might see this around social media, but a Russian colonel's been arrested for stealing seven T-90 tank engines worth 20 million rubles, about a quarter of a million dollars, US dollars. This is coming from Russian newspaper Commersant, uh, reported by Chris O underscore wiki on social uh, on Twitter, independent military history author and researcher. We've referred to a lot of his tweets before, and they are good. So this was a story about Colonel Alexander Denisov, who's the head of the Armoured Vehicle Service in the Southern Military District's Technical Support Department. Um, He's been accused of large-scale fraud between November 21 and April 22 as part of an organised criminal group, accused of stealing seven of the V-92C2 engines that were destined for T-90s. They're built in the um, Chelyabinsk tractor plant, used exclusively on T-90s and the um, the, uh, later variants of the T-72, the B-3 variants. We don't know who he was working with or buying the engines for, but uh, Commissant say that this is not the first time it's happened and they refer to three colonels in, in, a, in a similar armoured vehicle servicing unit in 2019, convicted of stealing and se- selling truck engines, the Kamaz truck engines, so not tanks, but um, other other trucks, the big, uh, I think they're six, six by six, aren't they? Anyway, as one of the one of the replies in the in the Twitter thread stream said, this would be a great way. I mean, that, that, so that's interesting enough as it is, and I think speaks of the corruption throughout the Russian system that we've that we've long been reporting and is and is evident. But you know, as the as the reply said, great way for somebody to sabotage Russia, the West maybe, put in a, a, a covert 
long-term covert operation to uh, to try and buy these things and then let the corrupt officials just go and go and do their do their own thing no suggestion that's happening here but i think that would be a very a very modern twist on um, partisan activity for example related to that is the news this morning that Russian General Mikhail Mazintsev has been removed as the Deputy Defence Minister of Russia. This is from Russian media, um, with suggestions again of corruption throughout the logistic chain. So Mazintsev was known, was was branded by Ukrainian media as the Butcher of Mariupol because of suggestions that he was in charge of Russian forces when a maternity hospital, another children's hospital, the drama theatre and civilian areas in Mariupol were hit during the war. That's that's uh, debated whether or not he was just in an administrative role at the time of those strikes. Regardless, he's been he's been sacked. He's uh, he's under international sanctions from the EU, UK and, and others. And although there's been no official information about the dismissal, it um, it does seem very credible from the sources. Elsewhere, where are we now? Let's go to um, uh, Militopol. So this is in the Russian-held area of Ukraine, towards the towards the coast, over by um, Mariupol, over that 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 way in the south. A pro-Russian collaborator was killed in an explosion in the city. A Ukrainian press is saying Alexander Mischenko, who 42 years old, before the full-scale invasion, was the head of the Prizovsky Police Department, was killed, and another injured. So Ivan Fedorov, who's the exiled Ukrainian mayor of Melitopol, said it was quite powerful. We are aware that it targeted a collaborator who had been working with local law enforcement. And the reports from Ukrainian media are that this follows, I mean, it sounds quite chaotic, but follows a reported gun skirmish in the city around 4am and another explosion elsewhere uh, about an hour later, but no further details known on any of those. There's video on our website at the moment, Twitter video from Special Hairs on Cat. Thank you, Special Hairs on Cat, which, again, we can't verify when and where it was taken, but cross-checking some of the some of the comments and other say, geographical information, it does seem to be from the area from this morning. But that suggests the seat of the explosion was not a car bomb, although you'll see in the imagery, you'll see in the film, there are many vehicles, many cars damaged in the area and destroyed in the area. But it looks like the seat of the explosion was was off the road in the, if you can imagine, the, the grass strip running between the, the footpath and the road itself. So if something's dug in there, I just looked at that and I thought, well, that that suggests a bit more planning, you know, to go in there and actually dig something in rather than drive a drive a car bomb into position although you know probably less technically sophisticated if you've dug it in rather than a car bomb but seems very very obviously specifically targeted against this guy and you know Melitopol has for months been the seat of uh, you know really high level partisan activity we've reported on it many many times and just one to finish off with it I don't think it's that significant but just because you'll see it around the bazaars Tuesday Mornings reported reported late last night, but Tuesday morning, British and German fighter jets intercepted three Russian planes over the Baltic Sea. It, there were two Su-27 fighters that seemed to be escorting one IL-20, Aleutian 20 reconnaissance plane. Now they're in international airspace, that's fine, but the cheeky tinkers had their transponders off, which you shouldn't really be doing. And RAF and German Typhoon fighters were scrambled from the Amari Air Base. In Estonia. Now, this is, as I say, this is fairly standard stuff. This is all part of NATO's Baltic Air Policing Mission. That's a, a rotating air mission around the Allies. It's currently those duties currently being discharged by the Royal Air Force and the Luftwaffe, the German 
German Air Force. And then from next month, it's the RAF, RAF only until the next next turn of the wheel. And whilst, yeah, so nothing nothing happened. And the vast majority of these intercepts happen. They're, they're going on in air and sea all around NATO's edges. It happens a lot off the north coast of Scotland that we get a bear coming down and the RAF have to go up and just you know, keep an eye on it. Happens all the time. Largely, largely benign. But of course, there have been incidents over the Black Sea in particular. So not the Baltic that we're discussing today. But, you know, last year you did have that incident over the Black Sea with the British, the RFRC 135 rivet joint electronic surveillance aircraft um, that had a missile fired. MOD at the time said in the vicinity of those recent leaks from from Washington, the, the sort of high-level intelligence leaks were suggesting it was more than in the vicinity of and it was uh, it was much more serious, but we, we may never know. But what I'm saying is that, that these incidents of, of reaching out and touching the other side aren't always quite as benign as, uh, as this incident on Tuesday suggests it might be. I'll take a pause there. Well, thank you very much, Dom. Before we turn to Peter Dickinson of the Atlantic Council, there are a few diplomatic updates I wanted to pass on to listeners. Now, at the time of our broadcast yesterday, we heard the breaking news that Zelensky and President Xi of China had finally had their first phone call. We now have the Ukrainian readout from that conversation, among with certain other developments that have happened afterwards. And so I'll summarise that now. So we understand that during a productive hour-long conversation, the heads of state discussed a full range of topical issues of bilateral relations. That's according to the Ukrainians. Special attention was paid to the ways of possible cooperation to establish a just and sustainable peace for Ukraine. China said it would send an envoy to Ukraine to broker a political settlement, that's their phrase, to the war. President Zelensky expressed gratitude to the Chinese side for the humanitarian assistance that they've received and noted that Ukraine properly cares about the safety of Chinese citizens in the country. The parties discuss ways to strengthen the Ukrainian-Chinese partnership. And I'll read a quote from the pullout. Before the full-scale invasion, China was Ukraine's number one trading partner. I believe that our conversation today will give a powerful impetus to the return, preservation and development of this dynamic at all levels. That's what President Zelensky said in the call. This should be facilitated by the resumption of the work of the Bilateral Intergovernmental Commission and the appointment of the Ambassador of Ukraine to China. It goes on. The parties emphasise the importance of efforts to establish peace. But perhaps the most interesting line in all of this, which is leading to some raised eyebrows this morning, is Zelensky reaffirming Ukraine's unwavering position to adherence to the one China policy and thanked the president of the People's Republic of China for China's support for Ukraine's independence, sovereignty and territorial integrity. So, why is this significant? Well, the one China policy, and this is coming straight out from Sophia Yan, of course, familiar to listeners, our China correspondent. She says the one China policy defines Taiwan as part of China. This one line so high up indicates perhaps just how much power China can wield. And indeed, I would go further and say that the the whole of this readout in many ways is is indicative, I think, of, of Ukraine really trying to please China, perhaps to be expected given what's going on at the moment and the vital role that China plays in terms of providing support for Russia. And of course, there was all that anxiety that China might be preparing to give more weapons to Russia. So it, it's understandable in that context. But there are some this morning who are 
anxious about this, who are sort of almost crying a sense of betrayal, saying that Ukraine are treating Taiwan's territorial integrity as suspect, just as other countries did and do to them with regard to Crimea and the Donbass. And if so, as Sophia says, it would speak, I think, to the challenging position that Ukraine finds itself and the desperate need it feels that it has to keep China on side. But as I say, I think it is important to register there is some alarm bells ringing this morning amongst certain quarters. But as I say, it's perhaps understandable in the context of the importance of China. And who knows, perhaps a prerequisite for this call was a commitment from Ukraine that they would would reaffirm this view of the one China policy. But in other news, just another couple of uh, updates thought it was important to go through. Our Rome correspondent, Nick Squires, reports that an Italian journalist has been wounded and his Ukrainian colleague killed in an apparent sniper attack by Russian forces in eastern Ukraine. Corrado Zunigo, a correspondent for La Repubblica newspaper, was working with Bogdan Bitik when they were ambushed by suspected Russian snipers in the eastern Kherson region. The journalists were attacked near the the bridge which crosses the Dnipro River near the city of Herzon and reading a quote here from uh, the surviving journalist I heard the shots I felt a burning sensation in my shoulder and I saw my colleague fall to the ground just one meter from me he died in front of my eyes an atrocious act he was a great friend and a wonderful journalist we've been working together for months in all five assignments I've done in Ukraine I had him by my side he leaves behind a wife and son And Ukraine's foreign minister has told Italian media that the Russians were responsible for the killings. Russians don't care if you're Russian, Italian or Ukrainian. They just shoot, he said. Now, that hasn't been independently verified, but it is strongly believed that this was Russian soldiers. Uh, And finally, an interesting story on the ongoing ammunition saga. So we've talked a lot in the past, of course, about how Ukrainian soldiers are not able to fire as much ammunition as they were in several months ago due to this so-called ammunition crisis. Indeed, I saw a piece on the BBC this morning out of Bakhmut where soldiers were describing that they haven't got enough enough ammunition for their weapons. This is clearly still a problem. But what's interesting is that the UK and Germany are said to be working together on developing advanced tank ammunition. So they've said that they're going to produce high-tech armour-piercing tank rounds for future Challenger 3 and Leopard 2 tanks. Ben Wallace, Defence Secretary here in the UK, said we're very pleased to work with Germany on this programme, helping equip our respective armed forces with a crucial battle-winning capability. The standardised ammunition will not only benefit battlefield collaboration with many of our NATO allies, but has important export potential for UK and German defence industry partners. Now, interesting to hear Dom's reflection on that in a moment. But just before we I, I turn to Dom, I think it's, it's quite interesting seeing Jens Stoltenberg talking about how Ukraine has received about 1,550 armoured vehicles and 250 tanks in the context of this. Clearly, they are trying to emphasise, I think, that how much has gone to Ukraine. But I wanted to ask you, Dom, before we bring in our guests, what's your assessment of where we are in terms of donations to Ukraine compared to what they were promised in terms of tanks? Listeners will, of course, recall all of those those tallies of things that were going through to Ukraine and what were promised. But what's your assessment of where we actually are in terms of things on the ground and ready to be used in the counteroffensive? Well, I would say in... So Ukraine, the, the view would be that they, they've sensibly, I think, gone rather quiet on this. 
So we've tried to keep up to date with who's been pledging what and who's promising what and who's been delivering what. But it does get very confusing because there's so many, helpfully, so many different natures of of equipment and ammunition now. So I think the closest we can get to is the comments by Jens Stoltenberg that he said more than 98% of the combat vehicles promised to Ukraine are now there. So depending where you draw the line and do the maths, we're probably not going to get the actual answer. But We've all heard of a lot of armoured vehicles being promised over the last few last few months. So if the vast, vast majority of them are there, then then that that's got to be, you know, that is a good thing. Now, he also talks, he says that what well, he said in total, we have trained and equipped more than nine new Ukrainian armoured brigades. So, I mean, that is a that is a big old, big old thing. So three so nine brigades, sorry, is, depending how you squeeze it, you could probably make three divisions out of that you know rough very roughly three brigades make up a division three divisions of corps and so on and so forth an army and so on you, you know draw the organogram from that but I, I don't think they'd do that i think what they probably have is is two properly heavy metal brigades with a nice healthy reserve there so let's say let's say two brigades even if you have two brigades each of three sorry two divisions each of three brigades and then you keep three divisions up your sleeve to re-roll as necessary when you when you actually start getting into the close combat. So I think that it's more, we're more likely to see two than three divisions. And also, of course, that it's not just a question of having all the all the bits and pieces on the ground. It's the controlling them and organising them that is that is arguably, well, as we've said before, the great quote, amateurs do tactics, professionals talk logistics. I mean, it's all about... It's all about sustaining it and getting through the immediate fight and fighting tomorrow as well. So I think what we'd have here the the Ukrainian armed forces to to suddenly be able to take on all these new brigades if they wanted to try and wield three divisions which I'm suggesting they might not that would just be too much of a, too much of a, a command and control nightmare think about the staffs for each of those and then the com- commanding and coordinating authority above that I just don't know if they'd be able to to take that It'd be too too indigestible a lump of heavy metal so I think well. So Mark Carlton Smith, who was the former um, the the chief of the general staff, the head of the British Army here before uh, for Patrick Sanders, I worked for him a little while ago, and he used to say that the first thing, the very first thing, the commander has to do is sort out the command and tro- command and control, work out who's in charge of what, who's responsible for what, who talks to whom, who who responsible and who liaises, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Get all the organisation sorted, and then everything else will fall from that. But if you don't get that bit right, if you have an absolute buggers muddle of an organogram of lines going everywhere and who's responsible for this and and so on it will just all fall apart so i think what ukraine might be doing here and might be trying to do is to, is to keep it simple kiss as we used to say in the british army kiss keep it simple stupid don't overcomplicate things and ensure you've got a nice fat reserve there for um for when for when trouble comes down the line and just on that that point about the the tank rounds i'm i've been looking into this because it's only broken in the last hour or so and we need to get Hamish DBG back on to talk to talk these things. These new these new rounds that Britain and Germany are developing for tanks, the enhanced they're calling them enhanced kinetic energy rounds, EKE for short. Which eek, I'm sure that's the noise that they'll be making on the other side of the range when uh, when these things start coming towards them. I mean, these are I, I I've got to look into them because I thought Challenge Three, Challenger Three, and the next uh, generation Leopard Two. I thought we were going to try and transition to smoothbore. We've got rifled barrels at the moment in Challenger, which is fairly niche. Most other main armies these days have have smoothbore barrels, so you can put other natures of ammunition down them rather than 
rather than rifled barrels. Um, so I'll have to see what these things are and whether it's a new gun that's going on Charlie 3. But yeah, just so people are aware, there's, there's basically two types of tank tank ammunition. There's kinetic energy and then there's high explosive. So high explosive, which which we call hesh, high explosive squash head, because the head of the round physically squashes against the side of the thing you're you're directing at, normally soft-skinned vehicles or, or bunkers. That squashes a big patty of high explosive, or, or rather makes the makes the the bang from the high explosive behind it um, much more has a much greater effect. That doesn't really get through the frontal armor of a tank. That's where you need the other round, the kinetic energy round. There is no explosive in a kinetic energy round. They're about I don't know twelve inches long, a couple of inches wide. They are just a, a depleted uranium dart, but they're going so fast. They're in in what's called the hydrodynamic regime. They go faster than 1,500 metres a second. And at that speed, metal kind of acts like liquid. That's what they say. And the, the metal just bores through the tank. So there's no, there's no explosion from when you hit a tank with a, with a kinetic energy round. You just see a small flash of the, the metal on metal. But they're designed to, to perforate rather than just penetrate. So to go through and out the other side. And not only does that create an out, a god-awful mess on the inside, kills everybody, but also um, the sudden increase in pressure with the blast wave behind that thing increases the temperature and just will set off any charges that, that, that's left. So kinetic energy is, um, you know, is a very quick but very nasty way to way to go but i would so i'll need to have, have a look into these and and we should get old uh, get old hamish back in to talk exactly what they are because it does i think it does mark a shift a big shift in the uh, certainly the british philosophy about um designing our tanks well thanks very much Dom. i'm trying to get my head around all of these uh, different <laughs> military terminology so we're very pleased to have with us peter dickinson of the atlantic council a leading american think tank in the field of international affairs headquartered in washington dc peter dickinson is the editor of the ukraine alert blog at the eurasia center and the publisher of business ukraine and lviv today magazines thank you very much for joining us peter first off what can you tell us about your background and your work on the issue of ukraine Hi, Francis. Well, th- thanks for, for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to join. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's, it's really great to, to, to come on and, and speak to you directly. I'm British originally. My back, well, I'm, I've been in U- but I've been in Ukraine since I graduated from university in the late 1990s. Uh, I originally came out here. Uh, I was appointed on a one-year contract with the British Council on a kind of civil society engagement role. That, that uh, expanded into a little bit longer, and when that that contract came to an end and it was time to come back to London to continue with the British Council. I decided to stay for a little bit longer and then one year became two, became five years. And uh, here I am 25 years on, uh, still here. So I've been, I, I, I think there's, a, there's quite a lot of the expat community. If you talk to people in Kiev and across Ukraine who are similar to me, you came here fairly randomly uh, and fell in love with the country and became fascinated by Ukraine and found themselves setting up, setting up their lives here. My work these days is focused on um, the, the Atlantic Council, where I manage their, their Ukraine coverage. Um, I also have two English language publications that I, that I publish, that I own and publish in Lviv and in Kiev. But neither of them are publishing at the moment because of the war, of course. So we basically put them on hold and just operating online. And I'm focusing on my role at the Atlantic Council and, and covering, you know, providing as much coverage as I can and working with a lot of the you know, stakeholders here and internationally to provide as much coverage as possible uh, of the war and, and of the bigger issues behind it. Well, thank you very much. And now I quoted an article from you recently where you made the interesting observation at the lack of reaction 
by Russia to Finland joining NATO. You wrote, Russia's apparent lack of concern over Finland's NATO ascension raises obvious questions about the validity of Putin's efforts to portray the invasion of Ukraine as a reasonable response to creeping NATO enlargement. If Putin genuinely felt NATO posed a security threat to Russia, he could have attempted to derail Finland's membership bid via a combination of diplomatic and military pressure. First of all, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think Putin could have done if he was really serious about this sort of idea of NATO enlargement with re- with regard to Finland? What, what specific steps do you think he could have taken? Well, I would have expected to see certainly a lot more bluster, certainly a military build-up along the Finnish border, perhaps in the Baltic Sea, a lot more of the, the kind of threatening behaviours that we've seen from Russia elsewhere, not only in Ukraine, but elsewhere, in terms of you know the, 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 the Russian Air Force uh, buzzing around, entering airspace, threats at the diplomatic level, uh, cyber attacks perhaps, uh, attempts to mobilise or destabilise Finnish society. So the, 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 I mean, we've seen over the past nine years of the of Russian aggression against Ukraine a, a wide range of hybrid hostilities, the capacities that Russia has, um, be you know above and beyond or, or alongside rather conventional military capabilities. And we didn't really see any of that towards Finland. We saw a very almost resigned or, or, or impassive response where they didn't actually take any concerted action. And, and in fact, the reports that we have, the information that's available suggests that they actually withdrew the vast majority of the troops that they've had stationed along the border area for many, many years. So they actually they actually um, pulled back on their defences, which, which I think speaks volumes about how they really genuinely see NATO. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was just a, a very interesting observation that I hadn't seen anywhere else. And I think it's it's it's, it's a really important one, as you say, for dis- disassembling Putin's arguments and justifications for this war. Another interesting thing that you said in the article, and again, I'm quoting from you here, you say security guarantees that come with NATO membership are probably the only reason why we are not currently confronted by an even larger war and further Russian invasions. Unless Ukraine can secure similar security guarantees, a lasting peace in Eastern U- Europe will likely remain elusive. How likely do you think it is that the West will be willing to offer Ukraine such security guarantees? Well, I think this is at the moment, that's probably the, the big elephant in the room. It's it's apparent, certainly view, the view from Ukraine is that that must happen, that they, they must have security guarantees. I think a consensus is building. We've seen in, in the recent weeks, the Estonian the Estonian Prime Minister Kalas was in Kiev saying very much that they, they need Ukraine in, in the EU and NATO and they must end these grey zones, European security grey zones, which Ukraine, of course, is the great grey zone. We also had an article appearing a few days ago in, in uh, for, Foreign Affairs from the Prime Ministers of Poland, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, again saying Ukraine must have security guarantees before NATO membership, almost, you know, not immediately, but certainly by the war's end. Uh, otherwise, we will not receive, we will not be able to have a, a resolution. Then you have other figures, such as even Henry Kissinger has changed his tune significantly over the last year to basically now recognise that, yes, Ukraine's place should be in NATO. So there's, there's a growing consensus, I think, that Ukraine should be part of the Western Security Club, but there's huge problems about the idea of NATO membership. I think it's very difficult to imagine any scenario where all 31 members are, are unanimously in agreement about allowing Ukraine to, to, to join, simply because it would put them in such direct 
and immediate confrontation with Russia. There's going to be huge reticence there, huge reluctance to enter into that. Um, so then the question becomes, well, what can be offered instead in place of NATO membership? Is there anything that could offer NATO standard security guarantees? Frankly, I've not seen anything that's really convinced me that's possible, that some form of, of non-NATO security guarantee may be uh, some form of coalition involving the United States, Britain, uh, certainly the Baltic states, Poland, perhaps the countries of Central Europe, maybe also France and Germany or other willing partners could come in and offer security guarantees. I've not seen anything really concrete in that direction. But I think we're going to have to talk about that. That's going to be a big conversation for the next few months. And certainly as we, if, if we see progress towards a potential end to the conflict, we're going to, I think we'll know a lot more after the summit uh, the, the coming NATO summit in July in Vilnius, that's going to be a very important event and that's going to be the top of the agenda, one would hope. If it's not, then we've got a problem. But you know, again, at this point, I don't see exactly what those security guarantees will look like, but I think it's clear that they have to be put in place. Otherwise, there'll be no peace. Otherwise, we'll just have a pause. And as you say, the nature of that peace is fundamental because if, for example, I'm sure the Ukrainians would argue that if Crimea were, if they were forced to concede that, not that I think that that. <laughs> they would actually accept being forced to concede it if you see one of me. But let's say they were hypothetically, then there'll be many countries, I'm sure, in Europe who might be one of these security guarantees who would feel very uncomfortable about offering that because they'd fear that, you know, Russia still have an influence on, the, on, on Ukrainian territory and the likelihood of it flaring up into another war that you'd then be obligated to go and fight in would be on the rise. So, But it was... In contrast, if this was a, a total victory for Ukraine, as they've defined it, then I think it would be much, much easier for, say, Britain, America, other NATO countries to say, yes, you know, we, we are more than willing to give these security guarantees to Ukraine. I mean, do you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, so much depends on the battlefield here. I mean, so much will be decided by the by the, the uh, events that are going to unfold, presumably in the coming weeks and months with Ukraine's offensive. If, if you know, in a best case scenario, if Ukraine were able to achieve its goals of full liberation of the country's uh, territory and, and a convincing victory, uh, and presumably that would also lead to considerable weakening of the Putin regime, maybe even major destabilisation within Russia itself, a window of opportunity would open up perhaps almost comparable to 1991 or the 1990s when the West was able to welcome in new members, new members to NATO, was able to, to enlarge and, and welcome these new countries in at a time when Russia was not in a position to oppose. That may be the case again, but I think that's the best case scenario. The issue of Crimea, as you mentioned, is, is, is key again. And I think any, any Russian presence on Ukrainian territory will be a massive red light for countries who are being asked to secure Ukraine's Security and you secure Ukraine's basically sovereignty. Uh, obviously, if they're saying, "Well, the country is not fully sovereign. How can we secure it?" We're basically, essentially, going into a, into a direct confrontation with Russia that will that will escalate. And Russia, I think, has been very clear. I don't think there's any illusions now in the West or internationally in general that Russia does not accept to live alongside an independent uh, and uh, democratic Ukraine, does not accept Ukraine choosing its own path, does not accept Ukraine controlling its, all of its territory. So um, the, the scope for further war is huge. And, and unless there are serious, serious guarantees put in place to prevent further war, it does have a, an air of inevitability about it. 
Now, you mentioned Henry Kissinger a moment ago, and I was interested in your reflections on his position, because, of course, as you say, his has shifted over the course of the war. But one of his central principles, which I don't think really has, is that he argued pretty early on that once it was clear Putin was not going to take the whole of Ukraine, that actually Ukraine had already won this war, that victory had in a sense been achieved. And yes, they would probably lose some territory, but compared to where they were and in terms of the, the now rea- historical reality that, that Ukraine will become more part of the West as a result of this terrible invasion, that in a sense his argument was that the West should really be be saying that this is a victory for the West and consolidate its gains, bring the rest of, U- of, of Ukraine into the country and try and end the war as, as soon as possible. I just wanted to hear your reflections on that assessment. Do you think we are being too pessimistic and too absolutist about what a victory looks like for Ukraine? I mean, I think, I think it, from, an ad- from an abstract point of view, it, the, you, know, you can look at it and, and I think certainly from some perspectives in the West where Ukraine is still seen as quite a new concept and, it, and, it, and there's, a, there's a degree of flexibility about it and what Ukraine constitutes. There is, a, there is an inclination to sort of say, oh, come on, you know, let's just let's do a deal on this. You, know, you can lose this, this region or that region uh, and, and you, you, know, you, will, you will be better off in general. You know, your future will be bright. But I don't see that from the Ukrainian point of view. I mean, from, from, from here, from the Kiev perspective, on the contrary, there's a very clear view that they have to keep the country together, that if they were to lose one region or two regions, Crimea, the Donbass regions of Donetsk, Lugansk, any of these territories, if they, were concede any, if they were to concede anything, it would be the beginning of the end. It would not stop there. It would go on. It would, it would legitimise Russia's uh, aggression and it would encourage further aggression. So there's a sense that it's really an all or nothing. They can't allow Russia to continue doing this. You know, this this invasion of the last 14 months has been, uh, you know, an incredibly traumatic experience for Ukrainians. But they also had eight years before that of, of a a much lower lower grade war, which was also claiming lives and causing stress and disrupting uh, everyday life. And then before that, we can go back hundreds of years of Russian interventions and Russian involvement, Russian imperialism in Ukraine. And there's a sense now. Uh, which I hear very, very frequently around Kiev, that like enough is enough and this is the moment. If we don't break free now, if we don't put an end to this now, it will never end. And also a sense well, that we have an opportunity to do it now because we see that Russia is weak and we are far, far stronger than we thought we would be. This is, this is what I see from uh, many Ukrainians. And I think there is a sense that they have to push it now. They cannot compromise. And that certainly tallies with the Ukrainians that we've spoken to on this podcast many times. And I do think, as I've highlighted before on the podcast, that this is one of the biggest... Uh, gulfs between some Western understanding, or should I say, because yeah, of course now Ukraine would probably see itself as part of the West. But what I mean is certain d- diplomats, they say in France and Germany and other countries that believe that a, a war that can be uh, summarised in the way that you just ha- have, um, that there are, there are things that can be conceded, whereas the Ukrainians, you know, are absolutely adamant that it has to be now or never. And until that gulf is filled, there is going to be misunderstandings, fundamental misunderstandings between both sides, which could be very dangerous in the in the longer term picture. I mean, I, I could even foresee a situation where, let's say, certain Western countries felt they could no longer provide the military support because they didn't agree with the idea of Ukraine trying to take Crimea, for instance, that you'd see Ukraine try and take Crimea perhaps without some of that Western military support, which could be very 
a very precarious diplomatic and military situation indeed. So I think this is a really important point that you've that you've just made there. I wanted to go back in time though a bit, if I may, which is that in in 1997 you served as the British Council's information manager in West Western Ukraine. You facilitated dialogue between Ukrainian NGOs and academic sectors, and also promoted UK government outreach in the region. Ukraine has obviously changed a lot since then. What are the biggest changes that you've observed in the country? Well, I think without a doubt, it's, it, it's national identity, it's nation building. The progress that Ukraine has made is, is, is night and day. When I first arrived, the, the sense of Ukrainian national identity was there. It existed, but it was far, far weaker. There were far, far more people who were not not hostile to Ukraine, but but indifferent. They did not necessarily associate with the Ukrainian state. And it's important to remember and to underline, in fact, that uh, Ukraine had undergone decades and decades of Russification, often quite brutal. And, and it was and, and huge amounts of suppression of Ukrainian history. People didn't know basic things about their own history. It was often quite remarkable that I would get into conversations with people and realise they really didn't have a clue about some some pretty fundamental things. I remember one, one, one occasion in, in Lviv in the early days, they erected a statue to King Danilo. He's a, a king of the, the Kiev Rus uh, era, uh, the early medieval period, uh, who was a very important person in the history of the city of Lviv and of, of the wider region of Western Ukraine and, and Ukrainian history. And most people I knew had no idea who he was. They'd never even heard of him uh, because, of course, in Soviet times, that was not something that was taught. And, and, and that, it, you know, there are many, many examples like that of people really having little idea. But over the years... There were certain key moments. The Orange Revolution in 2004 was a huge, huge watershed in Ukrainian modern history. Uh, it was a real moment where the country did diverge from this sort of general post-Soviet path where Ukrainians identified themselves uh, very clearly, certainly after the Orange Revolution, I think, as Europeans, as a dem- democratic country, however flawed they may have been. And also as a country of, with a civil society where people could take their fate into their own hands, uh, whereas in most of the other former Soviet countries, and especially Russia itself, the, the opposite was true. They were, they were turning back towards authoritarianism. So that was a key, key moment. Uh, then the Euromaidan revolution 10 years later. And I think most of all, of course, is, the, is Russian aggression. The, the 2014 seizure of Crimea, again, was just an incredibly shocking experience for all of Ukrainians. The war in East Ukraine in, that began in spring of 2014, when basically Ukraine didn't have an army, essentially. And millions of Ukrainians at that point were faced with a very simple question. Are, are you really Ukrainian? Do you really feel Ukrainian? Would you fight for this country? And, and they, they, they made the choice that, yes, they would. Thousands, tens of thousands volunteered and basically went to the front with whatever they could find. So they were volunteer battalions sprung up. Uh, all over the place, very ragtag formations of people just dressed up in their hunting kit, with hunting rifles, with with, with sports shoes, with whatever they could sort of piece together on the way. Uh, and they, they succeeded in stalling the Russian invasion in the east. Um, then we had the frozen, well, frozen, not frozen, but simmering, let's say, conflict for about eight years. And of course, now we have the last uh, the last 14 months of the full-scale invasion. But throughout this period, this the, 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 these... This, this growth in Ukrainian national identity has been really profound. And I think that's the key story of this war that we're having now. People talk about NATO, they talk about the West, they talk about Russia, they talk about Putin's ambitions. But all of it 
is a reaction, certainly from the Russian side, is a reaction to what's been happening in Ukraine. The idea that Putin has this sense that he's losing Ukraine. Ukraine, that it's slipping away from him. And if he loses Ukraine, there is a great chance that he will then suffer further losses and Russia itself could become, uh, could, could begin to unravel because Ukraine plays such an important part in Russia's own sense of, of self, of national identity. So this is a war of independence for Ukraine. And it's a war of, of national coming of age, so to speak. And it's part of a much longer process that I think is not always understood by international audiences uh, that is really shaped all that we're seeing now in the country and in many ways defined it. Thank you. I know Dominic Nichols has some questions. Dom. Thanks, Francis. Hi, Peter. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. If I could just stick on that that last point you were making there, this sort of war on culture, if I could paraphrase it, and, and just ask you how how planned do you think this was? So we, at the moment we're seeing these attacks or president zelensky said there's an orchestrated attack on museums and culture and and the whole the the orchestrated movement of personnel ukrainians out of the country and russians in and i just wonder if what your views were on on how systemic and organized that is is it is, is it an actual war on on culture and also did putin see this coming did he see this rise in ukrainian nationalism coming and feel that he had to act sooner rather than later or has he blundered into this and almost caused the very thing that could could be his downfall. Well, that's a very good point. I think to a, to a significant degree, he has caused it. He is the architect of his own worst nightmare. He has been behind a lot of the moments that I mentioned. You know, the Orange Revolution was largely possible in 2004 because Putin came blundering down to Kiev, went on all the national TV channels simultaneously, lectured Ukrainians for hours about what who they should vote for in the coming presidential election. And people who were very apolitical, I remember that period very well, people who were very disinterested in politics, very cynical, for the first time in, in my experience of knowing them, and from some of them I'd known for years, for the first time ever, they were very, very annoyed and angry and mobilized. And all of a sudden, they were, they were, they wanted to do something. They wanted to get engaged because they were so offended by Putin's intervention. So he has a habit of doing this. And of course, the wars themselves are, are the ultimate example of that: the, the siege of Crimea and, and the full-scale invasion we see now. So, yes, Putin is, is to a to a significant degree has caused these these problems that he complains about. I think he's very much aware of it. Yes, I mean, I think he sensed that. Ukraine was slipping away. He sensed that Ukraine was in danger of uh, becoming a success story, becoming an integration success story and becoming a much stronger nation uh, with a much stronger sense of national identity. And that identity crucially was as a democratic European country. Now, because Russia and Ukraine are I think objectively so close in many respects, culturally, uh, certainly ethnically, uh, historically, the fear in Russia is, well, if Ukraine can make that transition to European democracy, then Russians will want the same for themselves. And that's a very realistic fear. I think if Ukraine is successful in this war, we will we will live to see that. Um, so that was part of Putin's fear. I think he was very conscious of it. And he was conscious that the clock was ticking because this, these processes have been ongoing for some time. And then they, Russia's responses have become more and more aggressive over the years from interference, from corruption to, to limited military interference to the full scale invasion. So we see them getting more and more violent in their responses as, as the clock ticks and time runs out. Um, now, the, the first question you ask in terms of how systematic are these attempts to to um, suppress Ukrainian identity, suppress Ukrainian culture, I would say very systematic. I think this is, this is at the core of what Russia is trying to do. 
I would advise any any readers or anyone who wants to really understand what Russia is doing in Ukraine to read Putin's essay from July 2021, when he basically laid out a blueprint for for the for the, uh, the the suppression and the extinguishing essentially of Ukraine's national national certainly statehood and one could argue national identity essentially arguing that there is no Ukraine without Russia that Russia can only that Ukraine can only exist with Russia that Russians and Ukrainians are one people which essentially means that Ukrainians are a, a type of Russian. It certainly doesn't mean that Russians are Ukrainian, and so forth. You know, so he speaks about these things quite openly. And if you watch Russian TV, which of course is very closely and carefully choreographed, the genocidal language that you hear is is is, is routine now. They've normalised genocide. They openly say that there is no Ukraine. There must be no Ukraine. Ukraine is is is, a, is an invention. It's an anti-Russian invention. It must be crushed. And again, if you hear the accounts of the survivors from from areas that have been occupied, again and again, you hear the same stories of them attacking people who are within, who have any symbols of Ukrainian identity, any tattoos, for example, people who have a record of being pro-Ukrainian, people who have a, on their telephones maybe a Ukrainian flag or some sort of photograph of something that could be interpreted as pro-Ukrainian. That is a signal to attack. So they, they are clearly targeting Ukrainian national identity in a very systematic, methodical manner. I don't think it's by accident at all. I mean, perhaps some of the bombings of, of individual libraries might not have been particularly planned, but overall, there's clearly a plan in place, and the plan is genocidal. Thanks. And if I could broaden out just a, a little bit, talk about security in the in the round, I'd, I'd just like your, your view on whether the word guarantee is still helpful. I'm thinking of... Obama's red lines in Syria that uh, Bashar Assad trampled all over and then nothing happened. And I just wonder if, if ambiguity is better here. I think your know, Ireland is outside NATO, but, you know, if Ireland were invaded tomorrow, I think they could probably expect some friends to, to turn up. And we, we start off today talking about talking about Ukraine's very careful language with uh, Xi Jinping over one China, which is a which is a, yeah the grandest of all international fudges that that recognises China but acknowledges Taiwan or whatever the wording is. But it's you know it's a fantastic fudge, and successive U.S. presidents are always asked, "Would you go to war over Taiwan?" Because there is ambiguity there. So I just wonder if if security guarantees it, it sort of spooks the horses too much you know you say you say to an ally are you going to offer a guarantee to ukraine yes or no come on what's it going to be and it almost puts the onus on us and it's no longer i feel it's no longer a helpful term just wondered what your view was on that no i think i think you make some good points there i mean I, there's certainly an argument that it's not helpful and, and ukrainians are very skeptical to say the least of course that ukraine has the very painful experience of the budapest memorandum which they believed were security guarantees and then and then it was actually pointed out to, to them in 2014 when it actually mattered that actually all they would be offered was security assurances and not guarantees they're very painfully aware of, of, of reading the small print of international agreements that they put their name to um, perhaps yeah perhaps it makes sense to, to, to word it differently and to frame it differently and I think I think fundamentally the only real guarantee is a strong Ukrainian military so uh, whatever the international support that we see the international framework I mean you know, Ukrainians will tell you very often like there is nothing else but NATO it's only NATO it must be NATO that's that's a, a good argument but I don't know how how realistic it is personally I think that it is not very realistic in the short to medium term so I think we are left trying to you know sort of scrambling to find some sort of formula that would work that would be sufficient to deter Russia 
But uh, even with NATO membership, again, you know, Ukrainians are very aware that they have to have a very strong military themselves, and they have to have it built up uh, extensively to the to the to the degree where it becomes simply unadvisable for the Russians to 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 attempt to even think about launching further attacks. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, I really do struggle to see a genuinely plausible and, and um, convincing alternative to to NATO membership in terms of something that would that would deter Russia. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, th- I think yes, I agree. So just finally, just just still on this on this framing idea, I I just again would see your views on the on the narrative around and and the importance of the expected Ukrainian counteroffensive that's being billed as sort of all or nothing, and and war is very rarely like that. And I'm concerned that that we still there are so many different ideas on what success will look like and would a shortfall would a would a significant thrust but that didn't make the coast or didn't clear the whole lines with that is that good enough or anything short of a of an overall ukrainian victory from this this counteroffensive is is that going to cause a rush for the exit or yeah a rush for negotiations I, I just again seek your views on on how it's being framed and if it's being carefully carefully handled or, or handled with sufficient care that people understand that that you, it could still be a successful offensive and the war could carry on for months or years to come i mean did you see it being framed as an all or nothing effort well i think that, that yes to a, to a to a significant degree yes i see that quite a lot and i think ukraine to has been part of that but i think also international coverage uh, has also contributed to that and it's understandable in a sense i mean it we saw such success from Ukraine in, in the autumn of last year, the, the Kharkiv offensive in September, then the liberation of Kherson in November. And there were, you know, there was real euphoria and a sense of momentum. And then that kind of dissipated. Uh, and then all of a sudden the talk has been uh, the spring offensive, the spring offensive. It's coming, it's coming. We see all the, the, the weapons coming in. We see the tanks coming in, the, the agreements on the on the large numbers of, of armoured vehicles, etc. And so it's, this this has been building up for, for, for now, for, for five months now. It's almost half a year and, and there is huge expectation. Now, if that expectation does, if we do have an anti-climax, you know, as you said, if they don't advance or if they suffer very heavy losses or if they make a minor advance, you know, take a few small towns here and there, but don't really, don't have any decisive breakthroughs, then yeah, I think it will it will create issues. It will certainly fuel the the conversation that we're already having and already hearing about maybe it's time for a, for a negotiated settlement of some kind. Certainly, that's being pushed by by the Chinese, um, by Brazil, by a lot of the global South, by by obviously Russia itself. That could be the case, but I don't think Ukraine would be. I don't think we'd be in a scenario where Ukraine would be abandoned, where people would where, where the West would say, you know what, we 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 gave it our best shot and it didn't work out, so you know it's time to time to call it a day. I think we're a long way away from that at this stage, but it would be challenging. Certainly, it would be challenging to maintain the kind of momentum we've seen and to convince the West Western partners that they should be giving more and more. You know, a, a successful general gets whatever he wants, but an unsuccessful general tends to have to try and justify themselves. So. It'll be very challenging if they don't make the progress they're, they're, they are hoping to make. And I think that a lot of people now expect them to make. So perhaps we have built it up too much, uh, which is which is dangerous. But let's see. Maybe, they, maybe they'll do, you know, they surprised us last last autumn. Nobody was anticipating the kind of success we saw then. So maybe they'll, they'll do it again. 
Well, thank you very much, Peter, for your really interesting reflections today. Are there any other thoughts that are on your mind, on your radar, that might not be on ours? Well, I think we've I think we've had a, a great discussion. Thanks very much for, for hosting me. It's been a pleasure. Um, no, as always, my thoughts are with the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian the Ukrainian soldiers, the men the men and women uh, in in Bakhmut today. You know, I, I where I'm in Kiev, and and we do sense the war here. It's inspiring and also horrifying to think about what they're going through so my, you know I, I would always always wish to just just remember them and, and and give give thanks to them and the sacrifices they're making well thank you very much peter we'll come back to your final thoughts in a moment uh, i just wanted to i know it's not usual for the host to have a have a final thought but i hope listeners will permit me to have one today as i wanted to recommend a fascinating long read which you might want to read and cogitate upon over the weekend it's by Verska, V-E-R-S-T-K-A. It's an independent Russia, Russian media organisation. It's hard to find and it's only in Russian, but one can read it by Googling Verska and clicking on the first link. Then if you scroll down, you'll see an image of Putin with some planes behind him. That's the article, which you can read by putting it through Google Translate. It's a bit of a faff, I know, but for me, it's one of the most revelatory long reads I've read since the war began, up there with the Washington post revelations regarding the intelligence assessments prior to the war. It's called How Putin Came to Hate Ukraine, an investigation into how the Russian president came up with the idea of a war with Ukraine. And it's it's based on conversations with former and current officials in the Russian and Ukrainian authorities. Each of them apparently occupies a certain place either in the political establishment in Russia or in Ukraine. So these are supposedly, allegedly from, from very high up figures. Some of its top lines, Putin's motives for starting the war were, were personal resentment and a desire for revenge, the last straw being the closure of the media assets of his godfather Viktor Medvedchuk, of course, someone we've spoken about in the past. He decided, it says, to attack Kiev in February, March 2021. And the preparations for the invasion went on for almost a year. But almost all of this time, the Kremlin proceeded from the wrong assumptions and calculations. Now, I can't summarise all of the of the nuances of this piece, but it goes back to 2012 and it looks at some of the speeches from that time when it seems that Putin's stance on Ukraine began to change. It argues that part of the reason for that is some of the philosophers and authors at the time that he was reading. And it seemed to be that he was digesting some of these. There were certain special groups set up to be thinking about Ukraine. And a lot of these readers and authors were didn't recognise Ukraine as an independent state. And certain questions had a, clearly suggested a, an imperial mindset with regard to Ukraine. And so one thing that this piece does is really try and dissect a timeline as to these perceptions with regard to Ukraine. Another interesting insight, if true, is that the piece argues the story of the, of the separation of Donbass was not Putin's personal initiative, but the initiative of FSB officers. So you'd had the success of Crimea and the feeling was amongst the SMB is that, is that you could have a, a similar situation in the Donbass and several key players told Putin, let's go in. There are pro-Russian forces in there. We can organise a counter campaign. We shouldn't abandon people. It'll be another triumph like Ukraine. And obviously that isn't exactly what happened. Um, but nonetheless, it speaks to the fact that there were certain fundamental misassumptions 
sanctions and that this was not just coming from Putin, but from other elements within the Russian state. Another insight, Putin continued to aggressively find links between Ukraine and the United States. He was apparently certain that NATO and the US controlled Ukraine. He found it very hard to conceive that it was actually democratically led. And he said that the, the he was convinced that the US embassy in Ukraine employed more than a thousand people, something that isn't factually, factually accurate. I think the embassy in Kiev has about 180 American citizens and about 500 Ukrainians working at the embassy. But even so, he believed that, that, that America essentially was controlling this and was manipulating the country. Apparently, during his first telephone conversation with Zelensky, Putin was convinced that he would be very malleable. He was fairly respectful. But very quickly, he turned against him when Zelensky went for Medvedchuk and his television channels, which Putin took as a personal attack, according to this piece. And it seemed at that moment, according to Putin and according to this article, that the bridge between finding a sort of peaceful resolution, as in Russia having significant influence over the country, was severed. And it was at that point that he began to to conduct things in a much more of a military fashion uh, in terms of seizing potentially the whole country. It also talks about Medvedchuk's mentality and conversations with Putin that were had. And uh, according to one official insights, he told fairy tales, mastering his money and saying that he paid for organising political resistance and did not believe that anyone would ever check. He talked about the loyalty of Ukraine and the territory, stupidly misleading Putin. And it goes on talking about the preparations, as I say, lots of detail on that. Then it talks about the original drafts of the article that Peter spoke about earlier on, on, on the historical unity of the Russians and Ukrainians. Apparently, originally, in the original draft of that, something now that I think will go down in infamy, particularly the way in which it was ignored by many commentators in the West as being something that he couldn't actually genuinely mean. Apparently, in the original draft, there was actually going to be a military threat in there, but it was removed at the last minute to the final version. So again, it speaks to just quite how far forward in the imperial mindset Russia actually was prior to the start of the war, perhaps far more so than people appreciated at the time. It seems that Putin really did believe it was possible to change the regime in Kyiv quickly and painlessly. And there were many advisors that were telling him just that. And so the, the elite mentality was sceptical and according to the piece remains deeply sceptical. But there's a mentality that essentially they have to work together as a team and that if you don't, that you'll be threatened. And it gives examples of where that's happened as well. So sorry, I, I know uh, uh, going on a bit there, it's a long, long piece. I think it's probably about 20,000 words, but hopefully interesting and one that I think will be used as a key source for when asking some of these questions. But Dom, I've gone on long enough. What are your final thoughts? <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Francis. I'm, um, I, well, in answer to that, there were many who, who saw the... Uh, who saw the threat very clear-eyed many many years ago? Thinking Dragon Bear here as we were as we we're talking about that. But my final thoughts: our old the old chef uh, and my would-be lunch partner Yevgeny Prigozhin has been up to his up to his tricks. So he's in. Uh, he always I don't know if he's in back moot, but he said that his the Wagner force there has um, laid off the artillery strikes in back moot to allow visiting U.S. journalists to be hosted by the Ukrainian military to make a film. So hey, is is this the shell? shortage we've heard about is it progression up to his tricks i mean it, it probably is the shell shell shortage he just likes he just likes to be front and center of these things i can't imagine out of his magnanimity he's allowed this uh, allowed this press tour to go ahead 
And I, yeah, maybe I'm a conspiracy theory too far, but I just know in the last hour, Moscow has said it's denied a request by the US embassy to visit Evan Gershkovich, the journalist who's being held in, in Moscow. Gershkovich, sorry. And uh, I, I just wonder if the, the two things are, are connected because Moscow is saying they're not allowing this consul visit because the US turned down a load of visas for Russian journalists to, to accompany Sergei Lavrov to the UN earlier this week. Yeah, maybe maybe it's all... Like I say, I'm reading too much into it, but um, I, I note the. Uh, I think it's actually illegal to deny consul access to someone in, in who's been detained. But that doesn't that shouldn't surprise any of us, and neither should it surprise us that uh, the Prigozhin's up to his tricks. But yeah, I will continue to watch both of those. Well, thanks very much, Dom. Peter, would you like the very final thoughts today? Well, let, my final thoughts, I suppose, should probably be looking ahead to the uh, to the Ukrainian coming offensive. It's certainly going to be a, a key moment in the war. The question is when it's going to happen. Um, people have been speaking about the spring offensive for, for some months now. And recently I've started hearing people mention the summer offensive, which gives a good idea of, of where we're at now. So uh, it's not clear when it's going to come, but it's going to come soon-ish. Uh, and I think uh, there, there is a key thing to watch will be the, the Russian morale, how, how the Russian troops hold up. I think we've seen in, in, in recent months the mobilised Russians that have been brought to the front lines in large numbers were able to sort of solidify the lines after Ukraine's advances last autumn. But there have also been indications of, of, of crumbling morale, of demoralisation. A lot of addresses posted online complaining about high casualties, cannon fodder tactics. So the, the, the hope in Ukraine, certainly, I think something to watch for would be potentially a, a, a 1917 moment or a, 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 a put le caput, as it were, moment where large numbers of Russians simply, simply stop fighting. And uh, given the control Russia has on the domestic front, it probably looks like the, the weakest link in the Putin regime at the moment may well be his army in Ukraine. So as the, as the Ukrainian offensive takes shape in, in the weeks ahead, that's going to be something to watch. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at telegraph.co.uk slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do please refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it really helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Rachel Duffy.